Okay, guys, we are continuing our series through the Psalms this morning, and we come to a Psalm that inspires faith in us. There are these seemingly unqualified promises that God is going to be with us and take care of us as we walk through life. But I think there's a little bit of a caution as we read this psalm, because we so badly want prosperity that we can easily begin to turn God into a genie. And we have to remember that God both gives and takes away. I think the message in this psalm is really interesting about God and is encapsulated in this statement in verses 1 and 2. Let me read that again in Moses' description of who God is. He says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, think about that image of a shadow. To be in someone's shadow is both a place of safety and a place of awe. And as we stand in God's shadow with Moses, we are reminded that God is good, but he's not safe. Now, one of my favorite books that was written in the last century, it kind of dawned on me why Elizabeth Elliot had named the book about her husband who had died on the mission field, The Shadow of the Almighty. And she starts that book by encouraging us to have heroes in our lives. And she's putting her husband forward as a hero, a man who had a clear sense of call on his life, who went to the mission field with this call, went to share the gospel with an unreached people group, And then, in his late 20s, died at their hands. At the end of the book, the very last line, she quotes her husband. And I think this encapsulates well what it means to live in the shadow of the Almighty. He said, I know that my hopes and plans for myself could not be any better than he has arranged and fulfilled them. Thus may we all find it and know the truth of the word which says, he will be our guide even until death. See, we can expect in our relationship with God there to be times of prosperity and we can expect that there will be suffering. And what we're going to see is in Psalm 91 that Moses points us toward a God that in the midst of all of these things, we can wholeheartedly trust. That's our big idea, that God is a person we can wholeheartedly trust. And so we're going to look at three essentials of trust this morning. The first one is that trusting God is optimism about what he can do. Okay, let's read verses 3 through 13 again. 
For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So like I said, this psalm was written by Moses. And he is writing this during the well-chronicled wilderness wanderings of the Israelites. They are on an extended and very dangerous camping trip. God has rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. They are out in the desert. And Moses is very aware that there is danger everywhere. He sees and is not ignorant of the danger. In fact, he lists a bunch of them for us here. He says that there are traps that are set for us. There are diseases. There is darkness. There is war. There is heat from the sun. There are lions and there are snakes. He recognizes that the Israelites are in a very vulnerable position. And then he looks those things right in the face of the presence of the Israelites, and he writes this song. He says, listen, there is nothing to fear. And he recounts what it's like to walk with God when you are surrounded by danger. He reminds them that God would deliver them, that he would cover them, that he would be their refuge, that he would allow nothing bad to happen to them. He says, listen, you'll even be able to walk on lions' heads, and you'll be able to stomp on snakes. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. You know what's remarkable about Moses and this psalm? Is Moses was an old man when he wrote this psalm. Isn't it true that so much of the time as people get older, they either become a much worse version of themselves or they become a much better version of themselves? And one of this, the things that can start to happen as a Christian or as a follower of God is your faith can start to shrink as you get older. And your tendency can be to start to look at the genera next generation and say, you guys are toast. Everything is going downhill. I mean, look at this culture. It's over. And instead of doing that, Moses looks out and he says, if I was looking at the culture 
If I was looking at our surroundings, if I was looking at the danger, that's the perspective that I would have. But I'm not looking at the danger, I'm looking at God. And so he says in the middle of this psalm that God is his dwelling place, that God is his refuge, and he is inviting us to have this refuge. I think a lot of us need a healthy dose of optimism in our relationship with God. We need to believe again that God can do anything. Some of us read this and we immediately start to theologize it and try to put God in a box and put this in different categories. And we start to get really logical about it and we're like, but God doesn't always do this. And Moses, I think, would say to us, yes, but he can. He can rescue you. He can help you. He can be your guide. He can do absolutely anything. And the Bible said that it's actually by faith that we walk through life. We don't look at the danger in our life. We look at God and we believe that he can do anything. Have you ever had somebody, when you were in a time of discouragement, sort of put their arm around you like Moses is putting his arm around the Israelites and remind you that God can do it? They don't necessarily tell you how. They don't necessarily spell it out for you exactly. But they just remind you that God is God and that he is for you. I remember one time, this was back in 2010, I was standing in the newly built auditorium at Cornerstone Church. This was pre-Salt Network. This was pre-this vision for church planting that has spread to 29 churches in the last 13 years. And I remember the lead pastor of Cornerstone putting his arm around me in that auditorium and saying to me, Drew, I believe that one day this auditorium is going to be filled with college students. And I remember thinking at the time, how? Of course, I didn't say that. (laughs) Because we were only filling like three quarters of the bottom section. We just put a balcony in. But I remember thinking, oh, I hope that's true. And guys, in the last 13 years, not only has that auditorium been filled up, but this group of people is here because of that vision and that dream. See, I was saying how, and God was saying your dream is too small. I can do anything, and I want you to trust me for more than your eyes can see. I want you to believe and live your life according to my promises and not according to your human reasoning and logic. And I want you to stand back and I want you to watch what I'm going to do. I think this has an application beyond 
church planting and movements of God, it has an application into our own lives. And the basic question is, where are you looking? Are you looking at yourself and your circumstances and the danger, or are you looking at God? Here's the way that the Apostle Paul says it in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4.18. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, when we look at ourselves, there are always limitations. There are always dangers. When we look at God, the possibilities are endless. And he wants to move in our lives according to his power and we grab a hold of his power by faith. So that's the first thing. Trusting God is optimism about what he can do. The second thing we see is that trusting God is pessimism about what we think he should do. Okay, I'm not necessarily getting this exactly from this text, but something that you might not know about Psalm 91 is that it's a dangerous psalm. And it's a dangerous psalm because it's Satan's favorite psalm. Do you remember the time that Satan weaponized Psalm 91 against Jesus when Jesus was in his own wilderness? Look with me at Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Jesus is in an incredibly vulnerable spot. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's tired, he's weary, and Satan preys upon that opportunity and uses the prosperity gospel against Jesus. He says this, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here's Satan's application of Psalm 91, is that you can at any time Take the promises of Psalm 91, these unqualified promises of God, and you can throw them back in God's face, and he is obligated to come through for you in the way that you tell him to come through for you. And so he dares Jesus to do this. He's like, listen, Psalm 91 says that if you jump off of this mountain— that God is going to send his angels to rescue you so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He's saying Psalm 91 is the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that if you pray hard enough and you trust God enough, that there will be blessings that will come into your life materially, and monetarily, and in terms of health, and that you can expect to never even get 
hurt if you do something as stupid as jump off your roof. And Jesus looks at Satan and he says, Satan, you're not a very good Bible student. You forgot that there's other scriptures in the Bible as well. And so Jesus flips over mentally into the book of Deuteronomy and he says, remember this passage, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here's what we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to take the optimistic passages in the scriptures and blackmail God with them. God is not obligated to come through for you in the way that you think he should come through for you right now. That is not trusting God. Trusting God is saying, you can do anything. That is testing God. Because when we trust God, we not only trust that God is powerful, that is, he can do anything, we also trust that he is wise, which means he knows how to apply his power to our everyday situations. Are you, right now, in your life, holding God hostage? By saying, unless you heal this family member of mine, unless I get into this school, unless I get married, unless I'm able to get pregnant, unless I'm able to get this job, then you are not really good. There's three things wrong, at least, with that theology. One is, as we've seen, it's satanic. It comes from not a desire to please God and honor God and to submit to God, but to be God and make God meet your test. So first of all, it's satanic. Second of all, it's brutal. It is absolutely emotionally brutal to yourself and to other people. It gives the impression that unless we have enough faith, then God is not going to come through for us. And so it gives us the impression that the reason that we haven't been healed of our cancer or the reason that this or that person died is because we didn't have enough faith. And so when you start thinking like that, you start becoming a horrible friend. Just read the book of Job terrible friends. Always telling Job, this is your fault. You didn't have enough faith. You weren't good enough. And thirdly, and most importantly, it's non-Christian. And here's what I mean by that. We have to filter all of our theology 
through the cross. And Satan is telling Jesus, if you go to the cross and you ask God to take you down and he doesn't take you down, then he doesn't love you. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, I don't want to go to the cross. Then he said, I trust you, not I'm going to test you, not my will, but your will be done. You see, our salvation was accomplished by a man who went to the cross willingly in our place, and in his hour of darkest need, God did not come through for him. That's Christianity. I, I seriously do not understand how anyone can read the Bible and get to the prosperity gospel. How can you claim to worship Jesus who died? Guys, this hits really close to home for me because the biggest prayer that I ever prayed got a no. My son Jude was born with a congenital heart defect. He spent five months and 11 days in the hospital. We prayed. We had hundreds of people on a prayer chain. Many of you prayed. And God, in his infinite wisdom, withheld his obvious power and did not heal my son. And so I have a choice. Give up the faith. God can do anything. Or I trust that God is not just powerful. He is also wise. And there are dots that my brain cannot connect, that I do not understand, that are there. And so... I walk forward with optimism and hope and buoyancy. And I still fight for that every day. Because it is not obvious to me that that is true. That is not a natural conclusion. That is only a biblical conclusion. So what is it for you right now? Is there something that's happened in your past that you are tempted to test God on? To say, unless you came through for me on this, then I would not trust you. Is there something in your life right now that you're holding God hostage with? You're putting the Lord God to the test. What if Guys, this is, this is like a mind-blowing thing. What if God is not just more powerful than you? He's also wiser than you. He knows something that you don't know. And so your heart can rest in that place rather than putting bad motives onto God.
What a great alternative. All right, so trusting God is optimism about what he can do. We don't want to lose that joyful belief. It's trusting, trusting God is also pessimism about what we think he should do. We don't put him to the test. And thirdly, trusting God is loving him, not using him. Okay, look at verses 14 through 16 of Psalm 91. Because he holds me fast in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is really interesting because it's not immediately obvious who's talking in these verses. If you read straight through the passage from verses 1 through 13, you see that the song is from Moses' perspective. It's both him testifying that he can trust God and also exhorting the Israelites that God can do anything. And then you get to verse 14, and it says, because he holds fast to me in love. I don't think Moses is saying, hey, Israelites, hold fast to me in love. Here's what happens. He's exhorting them to trust in God, and then God starts speaking personally. It's like he's getting eyeball to eyeball with us, and he's saying, listen, I know in this seemingly God-forsaken world, it feels almost impossible to keep going by faith sometimes. But here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to just see me as useful. In other words, I don't want you to calculate your trust transactionally. I don't want you to say to me, hey, if you give me this, rescue me miraculously so that I can run on lion's heads and jump on snakes' heads and see amazing things, then I'll trust you. But if you don't come through for me, then I won't trust you. I don't want you to think that way. Here's what I want you to do. Hold fast to me in love. The foundation of trust is love. As Christians, we know that we love because he first loved us. And that his love is demonstrated for us not by signs in the sky, but by the bloody cross. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so here's what you do when you get in trouble. You feel like God doesn't love you because of your circumstances. You think that he should rescue you out of trouble, and he's not doing it. You look at the cross, and you remember that God has loved you as a sinner. That your circumstances don't indicate for you whether God loves you or not, but the sign forever in the middle of history that God loves you is the cross. And then you love him back. You develop a deeply personal, 
trusting relationship with God, where as we've been learning throughout the Psalms, you share your real self. You have the audacity to believe that God loves the real you, not the you that you're projecting to everybody else. And because he embraces you, and you're a sinner, and you don't even like you a lot of the time, they're like, wow, like, don't we love people who love us? That's the most natural thing in the world. It's so easy to love people who obviously love us. And here's the craziest news in the universe. Like, I can't stop talking about it. God loves us. And so we love him. And then there's this paradox, again, at the end of the text. He says, okay, you hold fast to me in love because you do that. We have that type of relationship. I will deliver him. We're like, yes, you'll deliver me. I'll protect you. Yes. Sounds like we're not going to get any diseases. It sounds like death's not going to come our way. When he calls to me, I'll answer him. Yes, you'll answer. That's great. I love this. I will be with him in trouble. Huh? No, 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 no. I will rescue you from trouble. You misspoke, God. You're supposed to protect me. You're supposed to answer me when I call. You're supposed to deliver me with me in trouble. See, there's two ways that God shows his love to us. He either protects us from trouble or he sits with us in it. But here's what we know. He will never leave you or forsake you. He'll always be with you. Guys, isn't this how all mature parents are? How they treat their kids? Like, sometimes a wise parent will protect their kid from some harm. Like, I see danger coming. I'm going to pull you out of that school and put you in the other school because I know that if you were in that school, those friends would influence you this way, and that would really hurt you. So I'm going to put you in this other school. But sometimes, a wise parent doesn't hover, they don't come in and rescue, they don't protect, they wisely are present with their child, and they are helping them to navigate and avoid bad consequences by giving them wisdom, and they're present with them when they totally mess up. They're there when they fail. And we understand at a human level that to never protect your kids is unloving, but to always protect your kids is also unloving. Why? Because from our vantage point, we understand that in order for our kids to mature, they need to make mistakes. They need to learn. They need to stumble. They need to fall. They need pain in their lives in order to change and become the people that we want them to be, that are tolerable to be around, but also people that love, know, and follow after Jesus. And so God is the ultimate father who loves his kids. And here's what every parent also knows. No two kids are the same. And so here's our tendency. We start to look around at each other and like, well, he's getting protection, and all I'm getting is presence. Like, I want the protection, not the presence at this moment. 
Like, I didn't want the disease. I didn't want the struggle. I didn't want the suffering. I I want that. Here's what we can trust. I want you to stop thinking about your friend right now. I want you to just think about you. God knows you. Everything about you. Better than you know yourself. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what your neighbor needs. He knows how much prosperity you can handle. He knows how much suffering your life needs. He knows all of it. And he loves you. And so, you can draw near to him in love, knowing that he is being good to you. As I love this quote by this old Scottish preacher, his name's Eric Alexander. I wish I could do a Scottish accent right now, but I can't. He says, the hands that created the universe can never be doubted for their power. And the hands that were wounded to save us can never be doubted for their love. Yes, God can do anything. But he loves you too much to bring unqualified prosperity into your life. You can't handle it. You'd run away from him. You would trust in those things. You wouldn't cling to him. And he has a much wiser agenda for your life than you do. Here's our ultimate hope. Did you catch it at the end of this passage? Verse 16, it says, With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. How can that possibly be true for every one of us? How is that true even for Jesus? He died when he was 33. This passage finds ultimate fulfillment in the resurrection. Our ultimate hope reaches beyond this life, but is not a U-turn from this life, but is a continuation of this life. So here's what that means. This is the best way this has been explained to me. If you were wearing a watch, one of those old watches, ticks, you know? Remember those? Non-digital ones. Um, If you were wearing a watch when you were dying, and it ticked at one second after the 12, right before you died, and then you died, if you were still wearing that watch when you were in heaven, it would just tick one more time. Just look down. Guys, our ultimate hope is not in this life. And God will gloriously and wonderfully come through for us in a way that when we step onto the other side, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells and we're in our resurrection body, we'll look back at these moments that we grumbled about, that we complained about, that we blackmailed God about, that we tested him about, and we're like, are you kidding me? He was preparing me for this. We'll feel like the, 
the guy who's like hugging his coach after they win the national championship, who was once mad at his coach for making him do one more lap around the gym. Like, duh, I would have ran 10 laps if I knew this was going to happen. And so guys, let's lean in to the way that God is shaping us with optimism. Let's trust him that he is wise, loving, powerful, and knows what's best. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that there's passages like this in Scripture that remind us that you are powerful, that you can do anything. Thanks for the example of Moses. I want to be like that now and certainly when I'm older, just that I can look at the people around me and I can be bold and I can say, God can do anything. But God, also help us not to test you. Help us not to believe the lie of Satan, that you're holding out on us, that you're not good, that you're a miser. Help us instead to love you because you first loved us. God, I pray for that person who is blinded by a fiery trial that's happening in their life right now. I know in a, in a room this size, there's somebody who, who got a diagnosis this week or who lost someone this week or who found out some really bad news, who lost their job. And that is so real to them, so gripping their heart in this moment that, that it is hard for them to believe. I, I ask God that in your humility, you would show yourself to them. You draw near to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. Come, Jesus.